0: What's up, y'all? Look, it's Zach with Living Corporate. And yes, I know, it's a Monday. You're like, well, why are you dropping content on the Monday? The world is shifting. Why is the reality, as I know it, splitting in half? No, you're probably not doing any of that. You're probably just like, "Yo, yeah, okay, another podcast, okay. And that's what it is, like a bonus pod. Look, y'all, remember we had Royce West on a couple, you know, it was like a week or two ago, I don't know, a little, little, little bit ago. Point is, we had Royce West on, Senator Royce West, excuse me, St- Texas State Senator Royce West. What's up? Respect to the man. Um, to talk a little bit about voting and the importance of voting. Um, today it's the day before Super Tuesday, right? Like like Tuesday, that's the day you vote for your uh, the person that you want to continue forward in the uh, respective race, either being presidential or uh, senatorial. And um, we had uh, Amanda Edwards on and um, amanda edwards is uh, someone who is running um, for u.s senate Um, she is a a native texan and former houston city council member who represented 2.3 million constituents Um, and she actually uh, left that position to uh, run for u.s senate pretty crowded race i were talking a little bit uh, about just her background and the importance of voting as well as really why we should vote and you'll hear me say it in the podcast y'all like Living corporate is about amplifying and centering black and brown experiences at work. I believe a way, not the only way, but a way to do that um, for yourself civically is by voting. And I recognize there's different positions like going full dissident. We had Howard Bryan on the show and he talked about the idea of Colin Kaepernick not voting because he's like, look, if I believe that the system is inherently broken and I can't vote my way out of oppression, then I watch it. I vote. But, you know, there's different points of opinion on that. I do believe we have the right to vote. People are actively looking to take away our ability to vote, questioning our very uh, right to be here. I believe a great way to just say that we matter is by voting. So make sure you all check out this episode. Nothing changed the rest of the week. We got more content for your head top starting tomorrow and then Thursday and then Saturday and then the marathon continues. Till next time, y'all peace. Amanda Edwards, welcome to the show. How are you doing?
1: I'm great. Thank you so much for having me on this morning.
0: It's not a problem. Now, just to start, many people are saying that, uh, you know, Texas is really, truly the battleground state. So goes Texas. So goes the nation regarding tilting red or blue. So there have been, you know, accelerated attempts to speed that up. You know, we've had Bet- Beto uh, and Wendy's, Wendy's campaigns uh, being notable in that regard. So with that, let me ask you, do you think Texas is ready? And if so, what makes you the right choice to uh, get us there?
1: Absolutely, I believe Texas is, in fact, ready in 2020. And the question remains is, will the Democrats put up the right candidate who will be able to unseat John Cornyn? It is not a foregone conclusion that it will inevitably happen. It will happen if we put forward the correct candidate. And that is someone who can build upon the strengths of Beto's election. So when we looked at Beto's 2018 run, in a time when nobody thought it would be possible to flip the state of texas veto came within 215,000 votes of doing so and he did so in large part based on uh, the strength of getting persuadable voters out to vote for him in other words people who are independent voters or people who are in suburbs or people who are in non-traditional markets like smaller markets that don't typically vote heavily democratically Those are areas and spaces and places in which he had tremendous success in terms of getting the vote out Uh, where there were still some opportunities left on the table happened to be when you look closely at the numbers, you saw that communities of color, they've registered in high numbers, but they didn't turn back out and vote in high numbers. Uh, They were less than 50% of their registered numbers. People under the age of 35 likewise had high levels of, Uh, uh, registration, but did not turn out to vote in those same high levels. They were under 50% of their registered numbers. So what if you had a candidate who could, by virtue of her politics, allow her to galvanize those persuadable voters yet again, but in addition to that, be able to build upon Beto's run and actually also bring in those communities of color that had registered but did not actually vote, bring them into the fold, as well as those under the age of 35 who had this similar situation arise with registration versus actual turnout. If you can build all three of those coalitions, you will actually have the votes necessary in order not just to come close but to actually beat john cornyn and to make history in texas and that is what we are planning to do after getting out of this democratic primary which is in fact a very crowded field but i think a very important testament to the significance of the time that we're living in because it used to be the case where you couldn't get anybody to run in these primary elections because of how difficult the feat was considered to be now of course people have internalized that Texas is in fact winnable now and in fact that's why a number of us are running in this race. I for one uh, uh, left my city council at large seats are representing about 2.3 million texans to pursue this because i know how significant and important it is that we not just come close but that we actually can win and the only way to do that is by uh, galvanizing those coalitions that i mentioned to you
0: so what have been some of the greatest you know advantages and biggest challenges in not only being young and being black and being a woman but being a young black woman in this race?
1: Well, I mean, the first thing you always have to do is your homework, right? And we know that this is a change election, meaning there's going to be a lot of non-traditional voters turning out to vote. And so you can, as a result, I mean, just give me just a small statistic, uh, since 2016, for example, um, and there's been well over 26 newly registered voters in Texas, of that number, over 1.6 million of them are people of color and or under the age of 25 years old. And so if you look at that or you think about that statistic, the electorate is changing. So someone who's younger, someone who is a person of color is actually consistent with the wave of change that we're seeing in Texas as we speak. So these are not, you know, things that many people from the outside looking in might view to be uh, challenges that I face or obstacles I see as strengths. And so we have a huge opportunity in our hand putting in a candidate that looks and sounds and is about change also a candidate who has a track record for such i think it's important that you have someone when you talk to some of these communities that stayed at home last election cycle let's take some of the communities of color for example uh back in 17 when harvey struck my community that was 51 inches of rainfall that fell across our community billions of dollars in damage uh, loss of life loss of property you name it devastation across a broad spectrum and I got a phone call to go check on some of my low-income seniors. I said, no problem. And I went, and I just went to their houses, impromptu. And I learned they weren't removing the walls from their home. And, of course, they had been soiled by the floodwater, and that will result in mold setting in if you don't remove those walls. So I mobilized hundreds of volunteers. We went out and started going door-to-door. The first question I was asked uh, by many homes was, oh, because I was standing on their front door step, was, oh, are you up for re-election? And they asked it very innocently, but the question is an illustration of a much broader systemic problem in which people are only accustomed to seeing their elected officials show up when it's time for us to get a vote. And we've got to make it more than just about electoral politics and voting. We've got to make it about depositing in people's lives. And I think that's how you bridge that disconnect with a lot of these communities of color who are used to being exploited around election time only to see that the promises are never delivered. And we've got to have a messenger, which is would be me, who can demonstrate when they ask, well, why should I believe you that it will be different? Because I've heard this before. I can say it's been different for the communities that I've represented. And that's gonna be huge in bridging a disconnect. So again, another strength out of what some could perceive to be a disadvantage. I see as a strength.
0: I love it. So, so, you know, um, it's easy. I think, and let's, let's talk a little bit about, let's talk a little bit about like the presidential, um, Uh, the race as well because it's monday day before super tuesday y'all y'all get out there y'all let's get to voting let's go let's move Um, (laughs) (laughs) but it's easy right for black and brown folks i think to look at the current slate of candidates and see that the democratic party does not really prioritize the voice and representation like of us and with that in mind i'm curious why do you think it's important for that same group to vote in 2020 if the alternative could be just another candidate that Will ultimately ignore them.
1: I think that's what my campaign is all about—is about not just electing me. I always say, "Well, first, I want you—I need you to elect me." <laughs> <laughs> but first, doing that. But that's just one step. The second is something that I've embarked upon as a local elected official, which has been about empowering people to and to also hold their leadership accountable for the things that come out of our mouths. So it's not good enough. To see me as campaign cycle and let me go away and not come back until the next campaign cycle right because how do you get what you deserve you deserve in your community unless you hold me accountable We have to have an open line of communication this open line can be statewide it relates to not just being responsive to constituent requests but being present in communities hosting the town halls when I come to you you should be having a report card out. Well, where are you with this? We talked about this. What's the timing on this? Or never? Or, or not even a report card? I should just proactively share with you where we are with that. That's being effective as a leader in delivering results. Before I got into politics, I will tell you, I was a deal lawyer. I was a municipal finance lawyer. You don't get paid on a municipal finance deal until a deal gets closed. So in my in my mind, I'm hard- hardwired to to think in terms of deliverables, right? Right, And so you have to close the deal before you get paid for it. Right, And so in the world of politics, people can just give speeches all the time and not see progress in some kind of way. That's, that's doing your job. And I just don't think that the bar is high enough. I think doing your job is bringing home the things, the change you discussed on the campaign trail and not pointing fingers. What if the premium was placed at, and this also turns to the electorate. Okay constituents have to raise the bar for themselves. It cannot be that you say, I want to send a boxer into the ring to perform, uh, I want to send a boxer to go perform surgery. If you're asking somebody to bring home deliverables like policy changes, it's not about me beating somebody up in the public arena, mm. in public. Mm-hmm. It's not about me getting some cable news, uh, you know, applause for some some tweet I made. Right. It's about going and getting those bills passed. And that's what we have to begin to focus our attention on. So often it's the the case that we focus on the fight versus focus on the results. And I think there's a role to be played by the electorate to understand that you've got to be focused on who do we think can maneuver in that place and get something done there. That's what we should be rewarding, not so much who who can be mean like Donald Trump or who can you know, fight him. I mean, that's part of the equation, but that's not the exclusive element that we should be focused on. Um, you know, and I think that gets lost. And that's a huge, it's not a small detail. This is part of a, this function that we have in Washington, the polarization, because we elect people to go in and be polarized.
0: So, you know, you mentioned Donald Trump and it's it's interesting because the next thing I was going to ask you was about millennial millennials and G, Gen Z brown voters. Um, and, and black voters, black and brown voters, in this cycle, keep getting told that we have to make compromises in order to beat Trump, which often means accepting candidates that have troubling racial records, right? And like, I'm, I don't know why I'm saying troubling racial records. They got people got records out here that showing that they mad racist and or this is my show. I'm, just, I'm trying to use all this little political language. I ain't playing with y'all. Uh, you know what I'm saying? They got some crazy stuff happening in their past, but we're challenged to vote for them anyway. So, like, should we make that trade-off? And if so, why?
1: I think you vote for what you want to see. I mean, some people try to, you know, and, and and because ultimately that's what the change is about. And so if you see a candidate that espouses the change you want to see and enough people see it, I mean, whether you are, are in agreement with Bernie Sanders or not, you know, he, seen, he was in... Uh, he was seemingly a long shot early on, right? Right. And now, of course, you see him gaining momentum, right. and it's not because people say, "Oh, he's going to be the easy one to win." Early on, they just they they got behind because they wanted to see what he was talking about. Same thing with a, a litany of other candidates that we've seen. Obama, you know, Obama was not the high the likely candidate to emerge. I remember
0: Obama that in was high school, yeah, the
1: unlikely candidate, and people just wanted to see that change that he described so they got behind him and we've done it for good and for bad i mean donald trump is another example we've done i mean you know my great my good example is, is barack obama president obama my bad example is donald trump but people wanted to see somebody mess up the system you know they wanted to see the establishment just turn on its head and you know, whether I don't know if they're all pleased with the way it was turned on his head or not, but he's had a critical mass of supporters stick with him. And you just at it you know, in in both Obama's example and Trump's example, neither of those were considered the likeliest candidate. So it's about seeing what you want to see. So you support who you believe can deliver the change you're looking for, and if the candidate that you you know the candidate that you're being told to vote for isn't that person, then don't vote for him because you're the one who's going to be holding the bag with the policies they promote.
0: That's a fact, though. No, that's true. I think, and I think the the reality is, I think, I, and I read, I saw this somewhere on Twitter because you know Twitter has all the quotables. But they were talking. It says something like, <laughs> uh, "Um, the person who's electable is the person you vote for." Right. That's right. Right, like just vote for them. I love that. Um, Okay, so in this country and in this state, public or private, the quality of your education has more to do with the value of your home and your zip code than your worth ethic. So when you're in the Senate and you're asked to confirm the next Secretary of Education, what would you ask them to change?
1: Well, one, number one, I, I need a secretary of education that actually believes in public education. Can we just start there? Man,
0: yo, um, it's is, is <laughs> not I hate to I hate to start nah, let's nah, nah, let let's let's these shots
1: but off. But it's such nah, a let's fundamental building, block. If you're if you don't believe that public education should even be there, that's probably not the person to have over the Department of Ed. Number one. Number two, I would make sure that we have strategies in place for our students to be successful, no matter where they're in school. One of the things that is just, I mean, you know, you've heard about the phrase "the silent bigotry of low to no expectations, right? Yes, yes. And for us to not have those expectations of our students and put systems in place for success, pathways for success, and not just success today, I'm talking about meeting the next generation of jobs. You know, why I do a lot of work on tech and innovation, and people always, you know, and I do a lot of work in minority communities as well, and they don't see those things as being harmonious, and I'm saying, this should be something that's in all of our classrooms. We should be introducing our young people to the concept of entrepreneurship and, you know, just all of the things. We should be making those introductions. We shouldn't just be teaching for tests, okay? Okay. Um, because kids, that's not preparing them for life. I'm not saying you can't have a test, but we've gone crazy with it. We cannot We cannot just be there for a test, and that's the measure for success. We have to do better, and we have to have a well-rounded education where people have multiple pathways for success, including vocational, but also including for your institutions, no matter where you live and how much money you make. In Texas, we have seen the courts challenge time and time and time and time again our school financing structure, and that requires us to say that education is a right, which we have not gone as far to say. And so, you are not going to see the reforms that you truly need to see, which is this you know, the connection between where you live and the quality of your education doesn't make any sense. Education is our great equalizer, yet. We're perpetuating how unequal it actually is by virtue of tying it to your income. I mean, I'm tying it to your property tax values. This is this is not something that makes any sense. But we continue to perpetuate the systems because, you know, we have people in office who don't believe that public education has value. I am a product of uh, public high school. And I will tell you, you know, it is so important that we are investing even more than what we have in the past because there's so many other challenges and conflating variables our students face. So I'm a a proponent of making sure that all of our students, no matter where they go to school, can be successful. Um, They need to see that. I like to go back to my alma mater and... And, you know, model the behavior. You should have expectations of going to school. And, and they've got to see it. They're not necessarily going to see that at home all the time. So we've got to supplement that with what their good supports they're getting in schools. But truthfully, speaking, a lot of the support that I recall being in school when I was a student are no longer there. because They got cut because we, we, we balance our state budgets on the backs of our students. all all of the time and consequently our students have fewer resources to succeed like wraparound services and just I can go on and on and on and on and on about what needs to happen with our education system but I think first and foremost we need somebody innovative coming to the table bringing some new ideas to the table and I would be um, highly eager to see once we get our new president in office Hmm. Um, that we bring somebody in who can be serious about educating our youth, so we'll have a prepared workforce for tomorrow.
0: So you know and that's, that that sets me up well for my last question before we let you go. So, irrespective of who wins the election in November, um, the Democratic primary race has shown that there is a more progressive, uh, ethnically diverse um, voting population that is. <laughs> So what do you believe the Democratic Party at large can do to ensure that they capitalize on this ever-growing reality?
1: In terms of electoral politics? Yes. I think we've got to make sure we're putting up candidates that are receptive to the issues that these communities face. And people often ask, oh, well, what was the black agenda? And I said, well, I think it's additive, to be honest with you. I think, you know, the black community cares about um Healthcare access and education, just like anybody else would, but they also have <laughs> other issues in addition mm-hmm. that they care about. But I, what what pains me is when we try to, or when people try to reduce it down to one issue, and that's the only right. issue that we face. The, tr- the truth is, we have additional issues <laughs> right, right. that we have to contend with, and we have to have a broad spectrum of answers that are responsive to the broad spectrum of needs. And so we've got to have, you know, uh, an ability to do that. I'd like for us to be serious about elections, more serious about how we treat our elections in general. With a national holiday for Election Day, I mean, I just think this is crazy that we don't have that um, in our country. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we know why that is not the case, mm-hmm. but it should be. And just you know, we have kind of holidays for all kinds of things that don't make a lot of sense. We we don't do that for Election Day, and that's the primary part of how our democracy works, um, I think that's problematic. So, yeah, I think we've got to really start to not view the diverse candidates that do come forward as being candidates that have challenges because they're diverse. I think they are candidates that are Uh, stronger because of being diverse candidates, because that's the the direction the country is headed. I think we should support our candidates and support diversity within that representation, but also provide for more ways to provide clear sources of information that are truthful. You know, like some people pick up the League of Women Voters guide and things like that, but a lot of people don't even know where to start with this stuff. Right. And it's just, uh, you know, and it's very overwhelming as someone who is in in government who has been in government and in electoral politics it's overwhelming for people I, the kind of mm-hmm. questions i get how do i register when do i register why isn't there one clear depository for all information for these things where you could just get information for candidates and for, you know just to, right. this this seems like a there should be some kind of clarity provided for people to make it easier to participate
0: from an accessibility in, perspective right
1: yeah yeah Yeah, you're kind of on your own out there and i just think that's not the way to make it accessible to a master
0: amanda this has been a great interview great conversation thank you so much for having us y'all it's monday day before super tuesday making sure we uh we bring y'all the stuff to make sure that y'all continue to have your voice amplified and centered and you can't do that if well look for the sake of this podcast and this conversation i'm gonna say you voting is a critical way to amplify and center your voice let's make sure you get out there and you vote Uh, and we'll catch y'all next time. Peace, y'all.
1: Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at podcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.